God's Word, turn to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, the first letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read from chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, reading through the end of the chapter. I know your bulletin says otherwise, but call it pastor's prerogative. I want to maintain the context of what we're dealing with here. Really should back up and begin reading at verse 4, but uh, we'll start in verse 18. That should accomplish the purpose. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18, reading through the end of the chapter. This is the word of the living God. Let's hear from him even now as it is read publicly in your hearing this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning with verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Let's pray. Father, as we look now into this, the very... Word of the living God this morning, mindful of the great blessing we have to have it, to hear it, to hear it preached, but also mindful of the fact that without your Spirit we labor in vain. We wish not to, Lord, so we pray that your Spirit would attend to all that is said, all that is heard. May your spirit speak to your church. Even now we ask for Christ's sake. Amen. It was Frederick Wilhelm Nietzsche who was born in 1844, a man who belonged to a family of preachers. His father was a minister of the gospel and so were numerous ancestors of his mother. Studying theology, he he developed a deep aversion to the Christian faith. He portrayed Jesus as a weakling who shamefully died on a cross in utter failure. 
Nietzsche despised not only Jesus, but all, also all who believe Christ's gospel. According to Nietzsche, Christians favor suffering, scorn riches and learning, and prefer the weak to the strong. For him, God was dead and Jesus a fool. Modern secularists direct similar accusations against Christ and Christianity. They contend that Christ's teachings are outdated and the Ten Commandments obsolete. They charge that Christian norms inhibit life, obstruct self-realization, and induce guilt. They teach that if we adopt human standards, we are liberated from the shackles of the Christian religion. However, God chooses the foolish and the weak things of the world to shame the atheists, the agnostics, the humanists, the secularists. He abolishes their man-made standards so that they face moral bankruptcy and reap a harvest of physical violence in a decadent society. In the meantime, God chooses the foolish and the weak things of this world to advance His church and His kingdom. He honors the work of insignificant and despised people who dedicate their lives to serving God and their fellow man. He delights in those people who set their lives in harmony with His Word and who glory in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He delights in those people who set their lives in harmony with His Word and who glory, who boast in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Given in this introduction of which I did not write and borrowed indeed from another scholar, we have embedded here really two kinds of people. We have the wise of the world. We have the ones who think they have it all solved. They have it all figured out. Nietzsche, God is dead and Jesus was a fool. No, Nietzsche, God is alive, you're dead, and Jesus is no fool at all. That's one group. The other group is the wise, who have but yet been fools, but are made wise through the work of Christ and the gospel of hope. Those that delight in spending their entire day, their whole day, their whole lives in the service of this God, this Lord, this Savior of whom they would boast even on into eternity. The question, of course, is rather obvious, isn't it? Which one are you? Are you the wise of the world who think because of the numerous letters after your name or the education you've received or the various ways in which you may have been raised or not raised? Notice Nietzsche was raised in a Christian home. You think that even for even a moment is going to matter to the God of heaven? Or are you the other, the one who delight, I pray that you are, delight to see yourself as a fool, 
a fool for Christ. Knowing that there, there was nothing in you that brought you to himself. Maybe you think there was something attractive. Maybe you think there was something beautiful in you that moved the hand of a holy God to save you. Maybe you think it was based on your intelligence or maybe even your family line. Maybe it was some other thing like your moral standing and efforts. Yet those are the things that God uses to shame you. When He, in all reality, according to His own word, due to His own sovereign good pleasure, saves sinners based surely in His love that He determines to place upon them. You see, it is when people in the church, and after all, Paul is writing to the church, He's even writing to what he calls brothers and sisters here in this passage. All the way through the entirety of the letter, he's writing to people. And it is when these people, when you people, members of Providence, get so full of yourself, begin to think that you are worthy of being rescued, it's when these kinds of thoughts begin to center our existence as believers within the confines of the local body of Christ's bride, That's when trouble comes. That's when trouble comes to the church. It comes in the form of factions and divisions, all of it. When you begin to think that the entirety of the gospel, all of it is really about you and not the Lord Jesus Christ. That is when trouble will come. Invariably it comes, whether what church it may be, what time and space it is. It will indeed come. It came to the church at Corinth and it will come here if we're not careful. When we find ourselves thinking somehow, in some way, that God was somehow privileged to rescue us, that is when trouble will show itself rather quickly. No, instead, we must align ourselves with the thing that is most necessary, the thing that is most true, if we are to avoid these kinds of divisions within the body of believers. What are we to do? We are to do just what Paul says here. If I am to boast, if I am to say anything of that nature, if I am to parade around in any way, I am to parade around the cross of Christ, the glory of Christ, I will only boast in Christ and no one else. Not in my favorite elder, Pastor, friend, family member, Christ. Christ only. I will boast in Him and His labors. I will center my life around His glory and His righteousness. I will delight in Him in all things. Part of the problem at Corinth, of course, is that this is not what was happening. This was causing and leading to, indeed, the, the, the problems that they were facing, all of the problems, really, that flow out of this first, really, the first three and a half chapters. The problem of disunity, the problem of meism within the body, in the pews. Thinking somehow, some way, the kingdom of God is just this much better because I'm in it. Instead of simply rallying around Christ and Him crucified. The Corinthians here are being rebuked. There's really no question about that. And 
the structure of the text even tells us that as Paul begins with what is a command, a directive, a reminder of the basics of Christianity. Why would he need to remind a church of the basics of Christianity if they were rallying around Christ all the time? No, no, they needed to be reminded of their fundamental calling. They have forgotten and are demonstrating instead their own worldly wisdom and understanding because they do not consider the calling that has been placed upon their lives by a sovereign God. They have become just like the world around them. And as a result, disunity has come to the church because they are not boasting in the Lord. They are boasting in Apollos. They are boasting in Paul. They are boasting in Peter. They are boasting in whoever, but they are not boasting in the Lord. Maybe they're boasting in themselves. But look what I do. I'm a member of this committee of the church. I'm a member of that committee. I'm an elder. God must really be glad. I'm the pastor. God really must be glad. Now, boast in the Lord. This is the corrective he gives in this rebuke that spans these verses from verses 26 through 29. I just want to show you here in these verses that you, brothers and sisters, you are to consider your calling, rooted in the cross of Christ, who alone is preached and who alone is the only one you can boast. I want to show you that you are to consider your calling rooted in the very cross of Christ who alone is preached and who alone is the only one of whom you can boast. Two points as we consider this par- uh, th- these verses. And in my alliteration almost got me in trouble in this passage, but I think these work. First, we'll consider the apostles' imperative, verses 26 through 29, and then the apostles' focus, verses 30 and 31. The apostles' imperative, the apostles' focus. Let's begin with the imperative that he lays out for us immediately in the the first verse of our text. There we read, For consider your calling. Notice he addresses it to brothers, and really in some translations it's possible even to legitimately translate it as brothers and sisters. I don't say that because of the culture in which we live, by the way. I say that because it's just legitimate to the text. Consider your calling, brothers and sisters. You at Providence, consider your calling. His audience is still directed and his concerns are still about the Corinthian church. The visible church, the the visible makeup of God's people, a church that has indeed fragmented around various factions and ideas. Paul is correcting their thinking and misguided loyalties and continues to address them as brothers and sisters. There is, as it were, a, a pastoral tone Still here, even as he begins to rebuke them and correct them for some of the things that they are doing. Note the phrase, consider your calling. The term translated consider is the first word in the Greek sentence. 
Now, that means nothing to you, probably, if you've studied Greek, though. You know what that means. You know that that means it's there because of emphasis. It even predate, even comes before the word in your English word there, the word gar. For, translated, is the first word in the English, but it is actually that word for is the second word in the Greek sentence. The reason being is that Paul wants to emphasize this calling, this considering, this responsibility that he is giving to the church to do. It's emphatic. It it carries the idea of contemplation. In other words, put a different way, it is not passive. It is actually a present active imperative. It is something that you must do. You must endeavor to do. You must work to do. Otherwise, you'll forget. It'll go by the wayside. You'll be like every Western evangelical in the church who thinks that that's something, that calling, what what calling? The calling to Christ, the salvation, is something I did all way back then over there somewhere, and I don't even hardly remember the circumstances of it. And that was then, and what does that have to do with today? Paul would say, no, no, it has everything to do with today. Because when you forget, when you forget, if you stop considering and contemplating, you will fall prey of the evil one and you will lead into factions and divisions in the church and you will start thinking that you are all something when you're nothing and you'll start boasting in yourself. Many of us do this every day. You contemplate lots of things. You contemplate birthday parties and anniversary dinners. Some of you last night went out to a family's home uh, for dinner and you contemplated when you had to leave and how long it would take to drive there and how much gas would you need in the car. And uh, we contemplate all the time. We consider much, whether it's a small thing or a large thing, uh, we are considering often, aren't we? Can there be something more significant than considering our calling? The calling that Paul here gives by way of direction that they might then consider their calling, the calling of eternity, the calling of God upon their lives, the calling from darkness into light, that calling Perhaps it's good here even to review uh, by way of some specifics uh, uh, that are useful as we consider this command, and, and indeed it is a command, how you should respond to it. How might you respond to Paul's directive to consider your calling? First, your calling did not come according to your own intelligence. I'm just giving you something to think about. The Bible cannot be more clear that our union with Christ comes according to the sovereign good pleasure of a holy God. It wasn't because you were smart. It wasn't because you were an engineer or a lawyer or a doctor or an elder or a pastor or a seminary graduate or a seminary student. It doesn't come because you were a father or a mother or a child. It comes according to God's sovereign good pleasure. It doesn't come by your intelligence. It doesn't come by your efforts either. Second, the Bible is quite clear, isn't it? 
I know, we know, we know the verse. We know it so well, we don't know it. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What does that even mean? We know it so well that we don't know it anymore. The Corinthians had forgotten. Are we so arrogant to think that we would? It's good before people we do. We believe in justification by faith alone. It's not by works, but then we spend the rest of our Christian lives trying to prove to God that it was something that he should have done. He should have saved me. Look how good I am. No, it's not because of your efforts. It's not even because of your works. The Bible is very clear that it's not our works that rescues us. It is by virtue of the work of another in which we come to faith in Christ. This is important to understand. We know them. Right up in our head. Do we live it? The Corinthians certainly weren't. They're all about them. They'd forgotten that it wasn't about them. They'd forgotten that it wasn't based on their efforts, their intelligence, or even their worldly wisdom or knowledge or any other simple thing. It was simply because of the good pleasure of God who rescues them. How does this affect the way they should live? They should live in unity around he who rescued them. But instead they were not. It should affect the way we interact with our brothers and sisters in the church. And it should affect many things. And I didn't tell you anything that you didn't already know. But you're to consider. Because Paul's not saying anything new to the Corinthian church. He founded the church. He, he has said this before. One of the means by which we are called to consider is the very preaching of the word. That's really the thrust of the entire passage from verse 18 all the way to the end of the chapter. It's one of the things that happens in the preaching of the word of God. You are called to consider what? Your Christian life. What is that? What is that life? How did I get this life? Where did it come from? And how am I to respond to it? In fact, I will even go so far as to say that the entirety of the worship service is designed to cause you to consider. What do you do when you're singing, lift high the cross? Which was really good, by the way. What are you thinking about? What are you considering? What are you contemplating? For some of you, maybe it moves you as you think about the words and as you sing them and as that powerful genre of song comes across the heart and emotion of, the, of your mind and, and, and your spirit, it moves you to tears. Happens to me sometimes. As I think about what I was and what God has done. How is it I could boast in myself and sing those songs? That's a contradiction, isn't it? What are you contemplating and thinking about when the prayers are being offered? What are you thinking about and contemplating when you recite a creed that you've recited thousands of times? I realize that. I know the tendency to check out. I sometimes check out and I'm sitting up here. We ought to contemplate what it all means. Consider. Consider. 
Well, those are some introductory comments. What about the context of the passage? What is it that Paul here is driving them to do and to think about, even as they consider their own calling? In addition to those obvious items mentioned already, Paul fleshes this matter out through the use of three consecutive negative statements rooted in the word not. You see that? Now look at me. Look at your Bible. There it is, right there in the passage. But... For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. It's a list. (laughs) If you come to my Sunday school class, you know why I chuckled a little. Observation, simple observation, really, there they are, three negatives given to me. Probably important. Paul loves lists, by the way. Here's one of them. And so I've categorized them around three terms, these negatives, as we are called to consider our calling. First, we were not called because of our intelligence. Notice how he puts it, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Hey, look, I'm going to tell you something. This, This may offend you, I don't mean to. But the world thinks you're dumb. You're not smart. I mean, after all, what kind of dumb-dumb needs a religion to get through the world in life? That's what they think. You heard the story of Nietzsche. He thought Jesus was a fool. How much more the followers of Jesus? It's not due to your intelligence. It's not due to how much theology you know. I know, that sounds like a contradiction. Everything I teach you, you learn the Bible, study theology, learn the shorter catechism. Yeah, do all those. They're means to an end. But your calling isn't rooted in that stuff. I know lots of people who memorize the shorter catechism are going to hell. Maybe some are sitting in this room. It's not due to your degree or knowledge. Consider just some examples of men in the Bible. Brilliant men. I mean, these guys were the philosophers of the age, you know. They, they really understood it. I mean, they couldn't have been all that smart because they were fishermen. Okay, if you know that's a joke, I don't like fish. That's why I wasn't born in the first century and I wasn't a disciple. They were fishermen. They were common men. They were average intelligence. They weren't all that brilliant. They were just regular guys, regular people. Christ says to them, you follow me. You come walk with me. You learn from me. Second, not only is it not because of your, your calling that you should consider not because of how smart you are, your intelligence, certainly not because of your rank. Look how Paul puts it. Not many were, not, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. It's not due to your position in the church or out of it, frankly. I don't care if you're a doctor or a lawyer or whatever you may be out there. That's all nice and great and wonderful. You know, some churches actually think that that really matters in the church. I'm an elder. Really? You have no marks of one. Yeah, but I'm real influential in the community, you know. I serve on the board of some big bank. Oh, I'm a really important doctor. I give lots of money to the church. 
Whoopee. I can tell you here in this church, that won't move me one iota, and it shouldn't move you either. It's not about their rank. It's not about their position in the world. Look at these guys. They were fishermen. What kind of rank was that? They were just, one of them was a tax collector. Not exactly the most, um, uh, you know, uh, envious job to have then and now. I can attest by personal experience in the last few days, for those who know what I'm talking about. Some of you also, you weren't called because of your rank. I don't, it, it doesn't matter how smart you are. It really doesn't matter what position you hold in the world. That's nice. Great. Congratulations. And it's certainly not due to your heritage. Not many of you are of noble birth. Your heritage, your lineage, your family line. Yeah, but I'm a fifth-generation Presbyterian. That's nice. I'm I'm glad. I hope it mattered and and it's caused you to walk with the Savior. Oh, well, I don't care about that stuff. I, I just know that I've been a Presbyterian my whole entire existence since birth before birth. Wow. Great. Wonderful. You know, there's this guy, he had a great lineage too in the Bible. He was a Jew. He had all the benefits of Christ, walked with him for three, three and a half years, heard from him, heard the sermons, heard the preaching, heard the gospel, heard a lot of things, saw a lot of things, and guess where he is? Hell. The son of perdition, Judas himself. Noble birth, great family, no Christ. The calling wasn't rooted in that. Children, this is a warning to you. You don't get to heaven because of mom and dad. The benefits that you have for living in a Christian home is, it, is innumerable. You can't measure it. It's immeasurable. That's the word I was looking for. There is no price tag. A sovereign God puts you in that home that you might hear of the glory of the gospel, but you must believe it. Some of you today here in this room haven't even yet made a profession of faith in Christ, and you've been here for two years, or at least you've been at least here two years, and you've heard Christ preach from this pulpit multiple times. Sam, it's not your lineage. You can stand before the Savior someday and say, yeah, but I went to Pastor Bill's church, which is really to say Christ's church. I went to Providence. I heard the gospel a lot. I saw the Lord's Supper go by me all the time. And, you know, Mommy and Daddy were Christians, and they read me the Bible it, 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 before bed. Did you trust me? I what? Huh? It's not your intelligence. It's not your rank. It's not your heritage. Some of you here are sons and daughters of a pastor. It's none of that. Your calling isn't based on any of those things. Imagine if it were. Most of you in this room would be lost forever. Am I wrong? If it was based on your intelligence, some IQ test that you had to take to get in the kingdom of God, most of you would be No offense, I'd be one of them. Lost. This is based on rank in the world and position and power. Well, you have some, you'd be in trouble. 
What about this lineage thing? Well, you know, none of you were born into royalty. In some sense, we ought to be very glad as we consider our calling that it wasn't rooted in any of these things. But it was rooted in he who was all-wise, of significant rank, the God of heaven, and indeed of a tremendous heritage as he sat in the line of kings. So, if God didn't call these people, who did he call? At first glance, these statements may not seem all that flattering. Man, Paul, you kind of leveled the playing field with one failed swoop. But you know, there are things that should make us rejoice for the reasons I've already given you. Boy, am I glad. I am thankful that the call of God on my life to rescue me from my misery and my sin had nothing to do with me. Not my smarts, my hair, nothing. Because if it were, friends, I'd be gone, dead, where I stand. So would you. So what are they rooted in then? Well, Paul gives that to us too. It's really the inverse now. He flips everything right over. He lays these lists side by side and really in comparison and contrasting element. He puts them positively. The foolish instead are called. He's calling me a fool. No, it's not what he's doing. He's comparing you to the wise of the world. The wise of the world are lost. They're going to hell. The foolish, they've been called. Paul's not saying that those who are called and respond to the call for the preaching of the gospel are fools. He is saying that in the eyes of the world it appears foolish. But note, this call shames those who are supposedly wise. Why? Because what is true wisdom? And where does it even come from? Left to your own intelligence and wisdom, rooted in this failing world, you would be lost. That's what the wise of the world are doing. They got it all figured out, you know. God is sitting on his throne going, actually, Psalm 2, he laughs at them and holds them in derision. Left to your own intelligence, wisdom, rooted in this falling world, you too would be lost. It is much better to be a fool for Christ than an advisor to the evil one. It is much better to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a high-ranking official in the kingdom of Satan. Now, who in this room would rather be the doorkeeper and a fool for Christ for eternity than a high-ranking official in the kingdom of Satan? Second... He says it's reserved for the weak. He's not saying that they are weaklings. Again, turning it over on its head and comparing it to the rank and the power of others. I'm the man. God's going to save me. I'm the President of the United States. I got news for our President. Unless he repents, he too will perish. His power, his position, his rank won't matter at all. Not even an eyebrow raise. 
No, no, Paul says to consider that you were called because you were weak. Paul is not saying you are weakling. He is saying that those who respond recognize they are weak, that they are lost, they are hopelessly ruined without Christ. It shames the strong because they want to resolve their own problems. They think they can save themselves. They don't need the preaching of the gospel. They don't need religion. They say it's a crutch. It is for the weak-minded and weak need. Indeed it is, thankfully, because I'm both of those. I had a boss who used to say it to me all the time. How'd you like to have him for your boss? Ah, religious for the weak. He was telling me that all the time. Knowing full well I went to church. God used me in his life, I suspect, to shame him in some sense. I don't know. Third, Paul says, consider your calling that it was rooted and given to nobodies. Nobodies. Not those of some fancy lineage. He's not saying, of course, that those who respond to the call of the gospel are nobodies. That would be fly in the face of everything the Bible says about those who are found in Christ and how God views them and what God did because of his love for them. He's not saying you're a nobody. But the world says that. The world says, "Ah, who are you? Those that respond know that left to themselves, they are a miserable bunch of nobodies. They are emptied, as it were, of all swelling thoughts of themselves. There's a problem at Corinth. Everybody thinks they're important. Everybody thinks that they're the ones that matter. It's me, me, me. And guess what? Factions show up. Disunity shows up. Fighting shows up. Splits show up. But when we consider our calling and recognize that it's rooted only in the call of Christ, to those who have emptied themselves of all swelling pride and arrogance, who aren't tempted to say, look how good I am, God, You know, we live like that sometimes. Some of you live like that. I live like that too. It's a shame, really. The arrogant and boastful who think far too much of themselves, think they have something to offer to a holy God. Look what I do. Look at who I married. Look at my religious background. Sure, God, you must love me. Of course you have to love me because I'm a great guy. (sighs) No, no, God saves nobodies. He saves people who say, you know what, I've come to the end of myself. I'm really nothing. And without Christ, I am nothing. I'm doomed. I have nothing to offer. Zero. I'm naked. I stand before him with nothing to offer. We sing to him, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. I think I got that right. Sure, God, look at me. I, you must love me. Wow. Look, some of you may struggle with being a nobody. The problem with you, of course, is you haven't really embraced the gospel as it's given to you. Paul isn't saying you're a nobody. Because if you're found in Christ, you're a somebody. You're a somebody in Christ. You're the apple of God's eye. You are the treasure, his treasured possession. You are his favored people. In this he demonstrated, not proved, not that Christ came to secure the love of God, but that God demonstrated his love for you from all of eternity and giving to you Jesus. You must have been somebody. 
but you are somebody according to his purpose, not according to your own. Don't be tempted to think less of what God thinks of you. You belong to him and he belongs to you. You are loved with an eternal love. You can never be lost. By becoming weak, you are now strong. Do not despair on these things. When things are hard, when life is miserable, you don't look down at your feet and say, I'm just a nobody. No, I'm a child of the king. Why is that? Because of the king. That's why. Not because of me. Why does Paul give this argument? Why does he set it before us? Why? It's really simple. Why does God bring sinners to himself in this way? Because if it were any other way, man might have reason to boast and brag in the kingdom. That's what he says, right? He chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that, it's a purpose statement, so that no human being, no one, might boast in the presence of God. So that no one can stand before a holy God on that great day or any day and say, look how good I am. You really should have saved me. I'm glad you did. Aren't you glad you did? Yeah, it's really up to me. No, God did it this way, to shame the wise, the smart, the intelligent, the noble, all the powerful in the world. It's all Him. And it's rooted in Him. All of it's about Him. All of it comes from Him. The problem in most churches is that professing Christians fail to consider their calling and how it came to them. They forgot. And when that happens, it's going to become all about you. There's not a whole lot of other options. It's either all about God or all about you. The second, professing Christians live in the church as though the kingdom of God depended on them. This was part and parcel of the problem at Corinth. Man, if I don't show up for church, the place will just collapse. If I stop giving my money, okay, well, the place is going to close. I got news for you. God doesn't need your money. He didn't need the money at Corinth. He didn't need it here. Oh, you can't, pastors shouldn't say that stuff from the pulpit. It's true. I'm not worried about it. When we lose sight of the reality of our calling and all that God did to rescue us from misery and sin... We shouldn't walk around the church thinking that, man, the church really needs me. We want you. We're thankful. God's thankful. He blesses you. He rewards you for your diligence and labor. But you know what? It's like the bucket of water. Put your fist in it and pull it out and see how big a hole you leave. Not a very big one. Paul says, hey, look, God saves the most unlikely of people. He saves the low, the hurting, the weak, the foolish, the struggling, the miserable, the wretched, the impoverished. He saves the unworthy, not the proud, arrogant, boastful, self-sufficient. Why? So that no man can boast in his presence, so that no man can say, hey, God, aren't you glad you saved me? Yet this is precisely how some in the churches live. They were doing it here, and there's nothing new under the sun. It's all about me, they said. Look at my group. Look how smart we are. May it never be true of this church. 
And it won't be if you consider your calling. If you consider the basics, how it all began. What was it about you that attracted God to you in the first place? If you have to think about that for more than two seconds, you don't know the answer. Paul gives the answer. He says, let me tell you the focus of this entire thing. The focus of every church in America, the focus of every church in the world, the focus that this church ought to have, this is the focus that Corinth should have, this is the focus that this church is going to have by God's grace here at Providence. He gives it, the root of it. He says it, there is much in verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. It's interesting the way he constructed that sentence. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why don't you just say, because of him, you are saved? Which is, in a sense, what he said. But why did he appeal to the name of Christ? They'd forgotten. The root is because of Christ. What should we consider when we reflect on our calling in reference to Christ? Right. You should reflect on Christ. Not yourself. You reflect on Him. The Corinthian church had failed in this area. They were reflecting on their own wisdom, philosophy, favorite person in the church, but certainly not Christ. That led to factions and divisions. And we as a church... We'll go down that road just like they did if we're not careful. So we reflect in Him. That is to say, His person. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to run to what He did. He died on the cross. Very important. Essential, actually. The climax of all human history. He healed the blind and the deaf. He raised the dead. We, we are quick to run to his behavior and his actions. But Paul says because of him, not because of what he did, but because of him, he points us. That is his person. We are to reflect on his beauty and his majesty as the second person of the Godhead. We're to reflect on him as God. We reflect on him as like no other. We reflect on him as like us as well, the God-man. But we also, don't we, we reflect on his works too. What is it about his works? Well, he became to us wisdom, Paul says. In contrast to the phony wisdom of the world, he is the true wisdom. He grew in wisdom and in favor with God and man. He became to us righteousness. He is the righteous Lord. And in him we have real righteousness. He became to us sanctification. Yeah, we're good with the justification part. Faith alone. Christ alone. We're good Reformed people. He's our sanctification too. Because of who He is, He sanctifies us. As we are in Him, we are not like the wise of the world, but we are fools for Christ. He became to us redemption. He is the spotless Lamb that takes away our sin. Not through might or power, 
Not through the vain efforts of this world can our sin be atoned, but only through Christ. And when we think about only, not only who He is and what He has done, it centers our thinking around that which is most essential for the church to survive. He who is the head and king of the church. I have a whole list of things that he's done. I'm not reading it. I'm already too long now. How do we respond? How do we respond to the reality of that which we, when we consider rightly our calling, it wasn't rooted in anything of our noble heritage or our power or our intelligence or any other singular thing, but it was rooted only in Christ and Christ only. How might we respond? Same way Paul does. I guess I could read from the end of Romans 11 here, but Paul gives it to us. It's right here. It's in the text. He doesn't hardly even elaborate. He just simply says in verse 31, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, you want to boast? Boast. Boasting isn't wrong. Boast in the Lord. Boast in Him. Boast in what He did. Boast in His efforts, His labor, His work. You boast in all that He's accomplished. That's who you boast in. You don't boast in your own efforts and yourself. Let another man praise you, not your own lips. I think I read that somewhere. Boast in the Lord. Paul's quoting from Jeremiah chapter 9, as you probably know. But he says to the Corinthian church, look, you want to resolve this problem? You want to resolve these factions, these issues? Stop boasting in yourselves. Who cares about you? He put it a little nicer. No, no. You want to boast? You boast in the Lord. When you rightly consider your calling, it'll lead to you boasting in the Lord. When you rightly understand who you are before the God of heaven, it'll lead you to boast in the Lord. You boast in the Lord. You praise Him. You thank Him. You give all the honor and adoration to Him. It is to Him alone that He is, that deserves all of our boasting. We boast in Him. If a church is to be united, it must boast in Christ. It must exalt Christ. It must preach Christ. It must follow Christ. A church that is full of strife follows the fleeting ideas of this fallen world that follows people, vain philosophies that will never, ever save a single soul. And so providence will boast in Christ. The world thinks they are wise. Nietzsche thought so. I think he knows better now. It's really a pity, isn't it? A man who had a family heritage of preachers. Lost as lost can be. He was smart. One of the wisest worldly philosophers we've ever known. Lost as lost can be. The world thinks they are wise, but they are but fools. That is easy enough to say, and most here would agree with that. They hear the story of the philosophers of this age who deny Christ and think how stupid they must be. Maybe I'm the only one. Indeed, sadly, some of that thinking affects the church. It did at Corinth, and it will here if we are not careful. Therefore, three things, then I'm done. Consider your calling. Well, you've said that about 90 times. I know, but you'll leave this room in about five minutes and forget. 
Help each other consider your callings. Consider your calling. It wasn't due to anything in you. You were not smart enough, wise enough, intelligent enough. It wasn't due to your heritage, lineage, or how much money you give. It was due to God's good pleasure. Second, consider the means. It wasn't that you walked an aisle or even prayed a prayer. It was Christ. He made it. He paved the way. He gave you the means. He did it all. It was all Him. In Him you are rescued. It is in Him that you hear Him preach. It is in Him alone that we have hope. Third, consider the response. Boast in the Lord. To boast in Him would be to live for Him. Let your actions scream the glory of Christ. Live for Him. Serve Him in the church. Don't boast in yourself. Don't tell me how much you did for somebody else. I mean, it encourages me on one hand, and on the other hand, sometimes I wonder why you're telling me. Boast in the Lord. Serve. Do it quietly. Boast in the Lord. Serve Him in the church. Don't boast in yourself. What do you have to offer anyway? I don't mean to discourage you, but really, what, what is it? What do I have to offer? You boast only in the Lord. His person, all His works, all that He had did, that He has done for you. As we do that, God will bless because He loves to exalt His Son. And when He sees a church that loves to exalt His Son like He loves to exalt His Son, He can do nothing but bless a people that understand their calling was about Him. It was only about Him. Amen. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word. And again, we're reminded we're cut to the heart even. For we often do, Lord, think more of ourselves than we ought. Keep us from these things, Father. May, us, may we contemplate and consider all that was necessary to rescue us from our misery. May we boast. May we boast in the glory of Christ. We ask in His name. Amen.